Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Donald Worcester on the show. Dr. Worcester is an American environmental historian who is a professor of American history at the University of Kansas. He is one of the founders and leading figures in the field of environmental history. And his book, Rivers of Empire, had a lasting effect on me when I first read it in college. Our conversation covers many areas, including environmental history, John Muir, water, history of the West, changing landscapes, and more. I know you'll love this fascinating conversation. Please enjoy. What do we miss when we leave the variable of the environment out of our study of history? That is a huge, huge question. I'm one of the proponents of a field called environmental history, or some call it ecological history. We're trying to put all that back in for for lots of good reasons. And it's spreading as an idea. I think it's succeeding. But you're asking, what do we lose when we focus only on human beings, as history conventionally does, especially famous humans, which means mostly famous white people and mostly in world history terms, people in the West, and their achievements, always their achievements, civilization, et cetera. Well, we went through this question back in the 1960s when the question was, when we leave out all the non-famous people in history, that would include most people, women, African-Americans, Native Americans, immigrants, all the working class folks, what do we have left? And the argument, I think, then was quite persuasive, and it's swept the field already. So the answer was, we end up grossly misunderstanding what caused change and how it occurred and what we have become, what we have evolved to be as as human beings. We miss all that. We've reduced it down to the idea that a man gives a speech and therefore history changes, or a guy leads a battle and successfully history changes. But putting things back in and making the picture more complicated is essentially what historians are supposed to do, to explain how things change over time. If we don't have an explanation, we're not really doing our job. But to do this as fairly, objectively, and as fully as possible. And when you leave out important agencies of change, you've left out a lot of the story. So now we know, I think we're beginning to realize at least, that non-human factors like climate, oceans, ocean currents, viruses, bacteria, uh, all can have a big impact on what we call history. And so can birds, so can bears, (laughs) so can forest fires, so can snow. In fact, everything really, in fact, has a history. If we really are honest, history isn't just about white males or or about humans. Everything has a history. Charles Darwin taught this back in the 19th century, taught us this is the basis of evolution. You study the history of everything. And all those histories have been intertwined. I'm going on a little bit, but I think this is a very important fundamental question. Our own history as Homo sapiens, or technically Homo sapiens, sapiens, the twice-wise, so-called, that we are, 
our history has been pretty brief, a mere 200,000 years. Most of that historians traditionally have not dealt with. They've dealt with the last maybe seven, 8,000, maybe 10,000 years. But, so we've already left out most of the way humans have lived on this planet, if we do that. The history of planet Earth, however, goes back billions of years. Uh, and so does the history of life, which begins soon after. So how can we leave all of that on and say, we're historians? We're only historians of this tiny fragment, and that fragment is just clearly, necessarily, inevitably going to change and broaden. Wherever we walk, we're walking through a far more ancient history than we have generally realized in the past. The history has created the planet, it's created us, um, and we're the products of all that history. Uh, and we cannot understand ourselves if we just fail to take all the rest of that history into account. So that's a long answer to a very big and important question. Yeah. And I want to ask a question about kind of field boundaries. When I was in graduate school, there was people working on some of these topics that were in the field of geography. How do you distinguish between what geography does and then what environmental history does? Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a familiar question to us. If historians were, I mean, if geographers were actually doing history, writing about history, writing about the past, then of course they would be considered at least fellow travelers, comrades in arms. But most geographers don't deal with history. They are not historical geographers. And they and if they deal with the physical world, they leave out the cultural. If they leave out if they deal with the cultural world, they leave out the physical. But I would say that biologists are also historians and geologists are historians. And physicists are historians. Everybody now in the world of knowledge is thinking historically because we know if you don't understand the past you have no idea what what has made us what's going on what's going to happen in the future hmm. how how has the field of environmental history changed since you started working within it to where it is moving towards today oh so many ways one one of the most obvious ways is a number of people have gotten into this field i would I think it's fair to say that every college and university in the United States today has got some small representation in this field, some acknowledgement. That, that wasn't true when we started back in the 1970s. In fact, there was a lot of dismissal. Oh, this is just eco-freaks. Who want to write about the history of bears? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, was, I was asked this question a lot. Why do you want to write a Why are you writing the history of bears? Why would you? I wasn't writing any history of bears, but that was what I was assumed by my fellow graduate students, not just to the professors. But now, if you go to a meeting like the American Society for Environmental History, I went to the meeting a few weeks ago in Boston. Seven hundred fifty members from all over, attendees from all over the world. There are thousands and thousands of people. There are societies organized in Europe. East Asia, Latin America, there are people in Africa, Australia, wherever you look, there are people doing environmental history today. Quite interdisciplinary. Many of them are not in history departments. Many of them are in, even in environmental studies or sustainability programs. 
but there are thousands. So just in sheer numbers, a huge change and a lot more sophistication about the science. A lot more sophistication. You need a lot more training and so on to, to really bring all these other things in. I think there's also been, though, among historians who aren't quite sure they, they want to do environmental history from the science point of view, there's been a, a growing interest in environmental justice issues, civil rights and how those all interact. And so empires, empire building, capitalism, all those subjects have acquired, if not environmental historians as such, a people who put these two together and sort of say, look, what happened has human social implications, justice implications all through time. So I think at times I worry that that's going to overwhelm the deeper insights and motives of the field. But right now that's a very strong and compelling set of ideas. Yeah. Your book, Rivers of Empire, had a big impact on me when I read it as, as an undergrad a long time ago. And uh, what was, and we're going to focus on that in a lot of our conversation now, but what was the what was the discourse like before that book? What what writing had been done on water in the West? Well, I won't name any names because I wrote this book because I was pretty critical of a lot of the literature. I thought it was mostly who built what dams when, how many people worked for the Bureau of Reclamation, that sort of thing. Now and then a slightly critical political argument would come in that that affected some of the literature. But I would say that it was it was mostly celebratory. And so I wrote a book that said, that basically started with the assumption that we need to think more critically and deeply about what's been going on here and why it's significant. Otherwise, the subject just lays out there on the margins. Nobody pays any attention to it. My view was what happened with water in the West, let's say. That's, that's what that book is about. The use of water in the West has worldwide significance. Here's a story that has meanings in all over the world, not just the arid lands, but especially the arid lands. And there are a lot of them in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Africa. All these places have followed what we did in the American West or have a long preceding history. Yeah. So that's, I'm not going to criticize all the people whose work I there weren't that many, but there were a few, and, and many of them were in California writing mm. about the Cal L.A. water supply, for example. But but uh, there really wasn't a a, a broad view. Now <laughs> there's so much work going on water around the planet. You sometimes wish that people would look at some other subjects. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about the conceptual framework you used in the book. Do you still believe that Carl Wittfogel's framework of hydraulic societies is the best tool that we have to understand water use in the West? Well, Jordan, I wouldn't say that I ever argued that it was the best tool to understand that we could possibly have. I, I never looked at Wittfogel uncritically. But I thought he, he started us on a path that we ought to pay some attention to. His famous book was called Oriental Despotism, and it was mainly about China and Russia. So to read a book like that and to talk about the American West immediately is a kind of cheeky thing to do. Yeah. 
Bitfogel was a, a German immigrant to the United States, Jewish immigrant who came in the late, early 40s, I think, during World War II. And he never really applied his perspective to the United States, but it seemed to me that he was raising some interesting questions about power. And this is a very much a historian's question. Historians have always been interested in politics and power. And some think it should be at the very center of the field, but nobody looked at this guy and the people he was associated with. Mostly they were around the Frankfurt School in, in the Frankfurt, Germany. And they were interested in Hitler and the 1930s and how it happened that such a great society could end up being so morally bankrupt for a while. And so I thought we should actually look at that. But but basically the question they were all raising was how does technology, technological civilization, relate to the natural world and what are its political consequences, social and political consequences? So that's the question that Wittfogel raised. And he, he got it a little bit wrong. I think he thought that somehow it was responsible for modern day communism, dictatorial governments, totalitarianism especially. But all of these people were interested in the relationship between total power in a human society and total power as the conquest of nature. That's a good place to start from, even if you don't always agree with their, their analysis. So I don't think he answered them satisfactorily. Hmm. But basically, it's how does the scarcity of water or the scarcity of any important resource shape the growth and distribution of political power. And we can see with a lot of the droughts that are happening all over the world, that power and control of resources. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the areas around uh, Syria and Jordan and those areas and the control of dams and rivers and power is all interconnected. Do you see uh, there's... Do you see that there are lots of kind of comparative examples that we can see across the world that are following similar development patterns to the West? Sure. I think the questions in the Middle East are all in some ways, shall we say, at least connected to water. I wouldn't say that the scarcity of water in the Middle East is what's driving the difference between Israel and Palestine, but it's a part of it. It's a very big part of it in some cases. And Unrest, people who can't get food, refugees, all these things are going on. But uh, my my concern is not just with water and, and power, but, but with technology in general. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about water as much as we're talking about building dams and hydro facilities. California is full of this stuff. Every stream in the West that flows practically has been dammed, except one or two rivers, maybe the Yellowstone. So that's a technological exercise. And what are the consequences of that in terms of power? Who gets power and who loses power in such an enterprise? That's the question we should be focusing on. Yeah. Well, let's jump into California and water. I've got a few questions here I want to ask you about. I want to start by talking about the doctrine of a prior appropriation. How has that played or created inequities in California? Well, again, this is a question of justice. 
and there are many definitions of justice. Prior appropriation basically says whoever gets there first has the right to the resource. But it doesn't matter whether you live on on the banks of a river or far, far away. But if you get there and divert it to your land, you were there first. Therefore, you own it or you have the rights to it. Over the years, we realized that this was a little too much to give to people. And property rights are just a bundle of legal rights. So we, we stripped some of those away. We put some restrictions on, on that. But prior appropriation was an, an, an innovation in the West because people who uh, had land, a good piece of farmland, might be far away from a river source or water source. In the East, that was not so necessary. But in a way, it's a doctrine that goes back a long time before the West. It's a doctrine that basically, he who gets there first owns it, except Indians. <laughs> so we, we don't allow prior appropriation for some people, but we allow it for others. So again, it gets into questions of moral values and justice. But prior appropriation was, was seen to be too extreme in the American West, because not because it would leave out the Indians, although it did, and eventually that had to be rectified. There had to be treaties, there had to be agreements made to allow Indians water, to allow other people water. So it couldn't end cities water. I don't know why should people in cities just because they got there a little later, not have anything to drink. So, you know, this is this is the way it is. But, you know, 80 percent of the water in the American West goes to one source and one purpose only. That's agriculture. Yeah. So the farmers were generally privileged in this whole process. Yeah. What were what were the effects and impacts of the federal government getting involved after the 1902 Reclamation Act? How did that change water water fights in California? Well, in the first place, it pretty much put a stop to other forms of technology building and appropriation and so on. That is, most states just threw in the towel. They couldn't afford big projects. California could. California Department of Water and Power continued on and on to to have the capital and the technological expertise to move big rivers around. But otherwise, the farmers, the small groups, local interests, small capitalists were limited to the margins and the federal government assumed most of the control and became what it liked to call itself, the builder of the West. That's the biggest change that, that took place. But that meant that the federal government now had a lot of power over who gets the water, how much they get, how much land they can own, how much they can irrigate, what crops they grow. A lot of things that fell into the hands of the federal government as a consequence. And right now, with along the Colorado River, where 40 million people live, in, at least in within range, and depend on the river for their water supply, they're turning to whom to sort out all the mess they've got. Because, as you and your listeners will know, you know there isn't enough water coming down the Colorado River in these days. Never was, but there's certainly less and less each year. We're going to have to cut back severely, maybe half, maybe even less than that. 
So, you know, there, there's going to be a shrinkage of water supply. And where do people turn? They don't turn to, to Sacramento only. They turn to the federal government because the feds control so much of it. And it's an interstate matter. And so it's got to have the federal government involved. It becomes a huge player in the fate of the West. Yeah. I have a, another question about another piece of legislation. This one, the Water Commission Act of 1913, where it created a process for distributing permits. What was that process and did it follow an organized system or was it arbitrary in some ways? You mean the, distributing water permits yeah. on federal projects? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem was at that stage, as I remember, and I haven't reviewed this for a while, Mm -hmm. A lot of farmers that they got to come out and get on reclamation projects, little farms with water supply, just couldn't make a living out there. They didn't know how to do it. This was new to them. And they didn't have enough market abilities or marketing strategies or markets developed and so on. But they were going bankrupt. They couldn't pay their part of the cost. And so the federal government steps in to make it even easier because they didn't want to lose the projects. The projects were the crucial matter. The government wanted to build. You know, as as engineers for the Bureau of Reclamation once said, we enjoy pushing rivers around. We enjoy it. This is our work. We we're we're masters of this. And so if there's an obstacle, if people are failing and irrigation projects are falling apart. So this act stepped in to say, we will save you. We'll do what it takes to keep the projects going. And that's been the rule right down to the present. The government wants to keep these projects funded and it wants to keep them, and they're not funded completely by the farmers, by no stretch of the imagination. But the government has always said, we can, we'll do what it takes to keep these projects going. We'll work with whomever we can who can help us keep them going. Water is, is essential for almost everything we do. Mm-hmm. It isn't just what we drink out of the tap. It's also our lawns, the Huntington Gardens, the agriculture of the state, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, real estate development, you, you know, almost health, washing the streets of San Francisco free of the daily crud. You know, this is water is just everywhere in our lives. So if you don't have a steady supply provided by some technological means, what would be the population of California? It wouldn't be, what is it now, 50 million? Some 40-ish, I think. Yeah. So you would have maybe a million clustered around a few rivers here and there? No, you wouldn't have. This, yeah. This well, it was, it was definitely a loaded question in asking, but in I was asking it in some ways because a lot of the wealth that we've generated in California and the population growth was is dependent on these on this technology and it's hard to understand or it's hard to foresee how California would have developed uh, without these systems so it almost seems inevitable is what I'm kind of trying to get at is inevitable that these rivers were going to get dammed regardless of reclamation acts would you agree it's inevitable only if you assume that there are other causes making it inevitable. It wasn't the water or the rivers that made it inevitable, it's the people. Mm -hmm. It's the number of people, it's population. 
crushers coming into the West. Look at all the people who have arrived in California over the through the Neils Gateway, you know. Trains, cars, my own parents came out during the late 1930s to the Central Valley of California and ended up actually in Needles, my home place, my birthplace. So, you know, all those people coming, and there were more behind them, and there's still more coming in. I mean, Los Angeles is the biggest immigration port, I think, in the United States today. So people from South America, Asia, you name it, coming in. All of them coming, expecting that there will be water. That makes it inevitable. It isn't inevitable, I suppose, that all those people come, but it is inevitable if their populations are increasing dramatically. So I start with population. That's just so clearly a case where population growth, fertility, make it inevitable. But that could change. It's not written in granite. There are other things that make it If you're a country that believes in expansion, in empire, power, wealth, getting markets in Asia, all those sort of things, if you have those beliefs, as well as that fertility, you make things inevitable. Hmm. Two more questions on water in California. So I live in the Central Valley, and the Central Valley was created in many ways by the Central Valley Project that took place during the Great Depression. There were a lot of arguments against the Central Valley Project made by indigenous groups and different groups. Um, but did the fiscal argument turn out to be the one most prescient that it would cost too much to maintain these systems? I talk with local politicians and farmers, and we talk about cracking cement and concrete and the desire to build new things, but sustaining a massive system like this, maybe it's going to be its destruction. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure what your question is. Then. Oh, yeah. Sorry. My question is, what what were the arguments in that time period against the Central Valley Project? And why were they mostly ignored? Because it was a bipartisan past legislation. Well, the biggest reason I think they were defeated was that by the 1930s with Frederick Franklin Roosevelt as president, there was a lot of pressure to apply the law and limit people to 160 acres. And the land ownership in the Central Valley was way over that on average. There were some small irrigation communities where people had 40 acres. You could do a lot with 40 acres of irrigated land, especially if you put it in pistachios, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but there were huge landowners left over from the railroad land grants in that state who knew that if they allowed the federal government to come in to build this project, they would have to get rid of some of that land. They would have to sell it to small farmers, and there would be a lot of pressure to do that. In fact, it would be illegal for the government to give them water for all that. So they looked for somebody else. They wanted somebody else to do it without the restrictions, and they found it in the, in the government in Sacramento, the state government. So that was a huge that was a huge factor here. I don't think most people in California were, were opposed to the Central Valley Project, but the landowners in the Central Valley were opposed to the project. I, I think most people in California looked on water projects as great for the state, great for getting federal revenues to come in and so on, but they did not want 
the federal government to come in. And, and at that point, the government had already started developing in a big way projects elsewhere, like TVA in the South. And they didn't want this sort of big government coming in and controlling their state. And, and I can't tell you, because there were no studies made at the time, no polls made on how this broke down in economic terms. But I think I could say that the landowners are pretty clear in their record what they wanted or didn't want. Okay. What what was the track record of the State Water Recesses, Resources Control Board? Were they effective in management or mostly without teeth? Mm, I don't know much about California, actually. This book is okay. about okay. the general West, but I don't know that particular. Of course, the Cal- California has built by world standards, and I mean going back thousands of years one of the most amazing technological achievements ever to move all that water around and to flourish agriculture and to create mass-produced industrial farming, all that. So it has a good track record in that way, but in terms of cracking down on monopoly, land monopoly, or or distributing the water to other people or, or protecting the ecology of the state, well, I don't think the state can claim to be so enlightened there, though it has done some good things. It's not an unbroken record. In terms of art and culture, is the movie Chinatown still the best movie about water rights and water? It issues? is my favorite movie. It is the, when people ask me, what's your favorite American Western? I say Chinatown. And usually the taxi driver or somebody will then say, that's not a Western I say it is. It's got everything in the West in it. Got horses even, cowboys riding in parades at least. But it's got it all. They think that the the Western has to be something out in out in the Central Valley in the foothills. People riding horses, Gene Autry or somebody, but you know, LA is the West and LA and that movie really capture brilliantly, I think. It's one of the best film scripts ever written no doubt about it thanks to robert town yeah last question on californian water the big fights these days are about groundwater and the water water tables below our feet where do you given your experience in looking at water issues across the west where do you think this is headed i know there was legislation passed in 2014 that sought to regulate the usage but it's challenging to say the least Well, groundwater has so long considered a personal property that it's kind of hard to get over that one in some areas. But there are states, New Mexico and others, have established public ownership of groundwater. Even western Kansas, where I later moved and grew up, has groundwater management districts that are established, and they're trying to grapple with the shrinkage of their groundwater, the Ogallala, not very successfully, but as somebody once told me there in that area, he was on the state water board, a political appointee, but nonetheless an expert on water. Why should I care about the future of water in this place, groundwater in that? My children are going to grow up and go to Hollywood. <laughs> so I said, well, there it is. If you don't care where your children live in the future, or that your community continues here, then you'll get it out as fast as you possibly can. But even states like Kansas, New Mexico, pretty conservative states in some respects. Yeah. And 
saying we've got to stretch this water supply out. We can't just go on irrigating. And what are we what are we raising with it? We're raising basically corn as a feedstock to cattle in a market that uh, may be shrinking. That is, people are not interested in eating beef as much. And we are importing a lot of beef from Central and South America. So I'm not sure the argument there is going to, that we need this production. Yeah. As fast as we can get it out, it's going to last very long. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears to another one of the, your books that I really enjoyed about John Muir. I, how have we projected some of our modern values onto John Muir? And how does understanding his historical context alter our perception of the man and the legacy? You must be thinking about all the controversies in California over John Muir's name these days. Mm-hmm. All of his name and uh, bust from the Sierra Club, the club he was first president of. It's caused a lot of ripples of anger and frustration with some of the ways even our mainline environmental organizations have gone. I've acknowledged that John Muir would not meet all our definitions today of of a progressive, a moral progressive, especially in the light of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I don't say that he was opposed to that. He probably, if he'd been around, would have voted for it, but all those bills and, and be in favor of it. But he's not around. We don't know what he would do. But my question is always, should we judge him by the moral ideas and values that have emerged so recently in world history? Or do we try to put him in his context? And therefore say, ask, what did he do that has lasting value? What did he do that was just part of casually being part of his times? I argue that he was a 19th century liberal, as it was understood in those days, not in economic terms, that is free enterprise, free markets. I think he inclined toward that too, but he, he understood that government had a role to play in regulating wealth and that wealth was not an unlimited good but but i'm talking about the abolition of slavery he was he was in favor of that clearly in rights for women that was a movement in the 19th century that he agreed with fairness toward immigrants he was an immigrant himself his family were immigrant family the freed slaves he met in the south when he traveled to the south he treated them with dignity and kindness and respect again and again and again. Native Americans, the same thing can be said there. There are episodes where he says demeaning things about people. That wasn't, that those were moments that he felt ashamed of in the first place. And secondly, they did not really suggest that he wanted to take away rights from people or that he didn't think that they were human beings or that they were not worthy of respect. That's just, so he's a 19th century liberal. Government ownership of national parks, that's good. Free distribution of land, he was in favor of that. He was in favor of open access to the outdoors. He believed in a universal love of nature among all people and and they all ought to have a means to satisfy this and, and be able to go into the national parks, etc. So in one particular, his liberal values 
I would go on to say 19th century liberal values extended far beyond what most liberals today acknowledge and accept. The rights of all forms of life, not just humans, but all forms of life to space, freedom, wildness, resources, respect. He, he could sit down and mourn the death of a bear on a trail and say, you know, I know my fellow citizens would not find the death of a bear very moving, but I do. It has its own intrinsic value. That's a view that we're still grappling with today. And a lot of people who call themselves liberals or progressives still have not accepted that. They think humans are the create, creation, special creation of God, you know, or something like that. So I think we, we can, perhaps we should criticize him for not being enlightened as, as we are enlightened. But the danger is that that kind of criticism can become an injustice of another kind. And that, and I think it's unfair to judge someone for not being more modern, for living too early, for not enjoying the enlightenment that we pride ourselves on. And, and I think we should also be willing to admit that maybe people in other ages had ideas and values that we have either lost or have not come to acknowledge. And that means we, we need to be more humble in our criticisms. We need to be more respectful. We need to try for fairness. That's, that's essential to being a good historian. And I think being a good president of the Sierra Club. Mm. What was the environmental perception to your book? How was it perceived? Environmental perception. Environmental groups, you know, their perception of your biography of Muir, how was it received? Well, I don't know about groups as such. I've never tracked them down, but I think I've received a lot of letters from people in the Sierra Club who liked the book and thought it was very useful to understand John Muir in his time. But environmental, but a lot of people who don't identify with any groups who have strong environmental values still look to John Muir as one of their prophets. Mm -hmm. I think almost everybody you talk to, though, acknowledges that John Muir would not probably be elected to the president of the Sierra Club today. And he's not responsible for what the, everything the Sierra Club did. He hardly went to meetings at times <laughs> in San Francisco. He was a kind of do-nothing president for much of the time. Call him the leader of it. He had no control over who was admitted and, and who what they thought and said. There are people who got into the Sierra Club for social reasons, not... Or, but John Muir was not there actively at the door trying to keep them out, that's for sure. So I think a lot of people still look to him. They want to see his, they want to read his books because they are lyrical at times. They're very informative as well. And they want to have some heroes who are doing good things for this planet. And I think he did. The national park system would not be what it is today without John Muir. Is that a good thing? I think it's a damn good thing. Yeah. Well, on that note, I was going to bring up that legacy of national parks. In 2021, there was an article in the Atlantic magazine that made some serious criticisms of how the national park systems run. Uh, and I have experienced some of those living down the road from Yosemite. Sometimes I'll go up the hike and it will be shoulder to shoulder climbing up the side of Vernal Falls. And so there's a lot of people that are coming in 
and a lot of usage in the parks. And so the article basically made the case that they're overused, but then also that indigenous groups should be the ones running the parks. What do you think of that criticism and that solution? Well, I think indigenous people have an important role and place in the parks. To run them is another matter. I don't think they have the training to sort out all of these issues. And there are lots of, you've got to hire, a lot of science is required in managing these parks today. How are you going to sort out who gets the right to come into the park or not? I don't think any ethnic group, any economic group in American society ought to have complete control over that. So we want somebody disinterested who can sort it out. But the crowds of people who come into our national parks, Yosemite, Great Smokies, a few others that are close and easy to get to and spectacular. What's that a function of? It's a function of, of population growth. We can't have a population, a world population of 8 billion people with so few national parks. Everybody wants to go to the same few. Now, other countries have established their own national park. Every country's got a national park system these days. And so we can hope, but this, they still want to come to see Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. And are we to keep them out? Do they have a right to see this? These are, in some sense, the heritage of all humanity and not Native Americans or not immigrant Americans or not, you know, George Bush Americans, they're, 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 not, they're not the property of any group of people. They are a heritage of the species, and, and we can hope that they will be, there will be fewer of us in the future, and that there might be less pressure on them, and maybe less pollution from our automobile exhausts and all the trash and stuff we bring. And well, we, we need to manage the parks better all the time, but I don't know who's going to do this job who isn't trained for it. Yeah. Our last section before we close on book recommendations is about changing landscapes. This winter in California, we've had a enormous amount of rain where I am in the Central Valley. And there's been so much flooding uh, in the kind of Tulare County area that they're starting to refill up the Tulare Lake. So how, how has uh, the use of technology, control of water, how has that changed the Western landscape? I'm giving one example of the lake going away, but I when I hear when I read descriptions of the LA basin, for example, before a lot of the you know the development and thinking about it like a swamp with rivers streaming through and animals all over the LA basin, it's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, it's astonishing. And yet the oldest truth in this picture is that you cannot stop a river from flowing you you can manage it you can restrain it but uh, there are powerful geological forces on this planet regardless of what we do to the climate that are going to have an effect and so this is a futile thing in the, every great irrigation bound or hydraulic engineering bound society has failed and mostly because things fall apart silt builds up they have all these environmental problems so the water's going to come back. It's going to, gravity's going to ensure this. Gravity alone will ensure this. And the solar radiation sucking up from the oceans is going to affect this. We are modifying it. And the modifications right now are still, I think, on the smaller scale. They're not 
something we can't deal with. It could get worse. But but the point is that that we have never thought about the consequences. We thought we were creating something that could endure forever. Well, there may be traces a few thousand years from now, some of this, but it won't be functioning the way it is now. The continents are moving. Everything's in motion. Everything changes on this planet. And you can't build a technological apparatus that you can protect from those changes forever. Those dams are corroding. They will fall apart, just like highways. So, you know, the, the illusion that we can achieve domination and control over something like water is just part of our general delusion about our relationships with this planet. And I think people in California are probably more aware than people in many other states that this is not something that is invulnerable or forever. I just have picked up a new book that just came out whose name is escaping me, but uh, the premise of the book is that we should have some positivity towards the way things are going on a bunch of different fronts with how people are responding to environmental challenges and climate change. Are you hopeful? Yes. Definitely. Okay. Why are you hopeful? <laughs> well, I'm hopeful in a way that is, I think, limited and guarded. I'm, I'm not an apocalyptic person at all. I left that behind with religion. You know, that's not... We've been around on this planet for 200,000 years, and we've been through far more than we're facing right now, to be honest. We're scared because we're so secure otherwise. But most of our history was in the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, when temperatures were going up and down far more dramatically than they are today, especially falling. So when we survived and spread and populated, so that by 10,000 years ago, there's something like 5, 10, 15 million people on the earth. They survived all that. Well, we're going to survive. I think we could survive easily for another 200,000 years, probably 500,000 years, maybe several million years. It'll be billions before the sun goes out. But so I think the human species record is going to keep us surviving. I'm hopeful in that, if that's what one means. I think I have a lot of hope in the resilience of life on this planet. We don't even know what life is. And we, th we think about life being a bear or a forest, but it's mostly bacteria. And it's mostly microbes. And it's mostly stuff on the bottom of the ocean that we're just now discovering. Millions and millions of species that we're not affecting or, or, or we cannot stop their evolution. I'm hopeful that in that nature itself is resilient. I'm also hopeful that people's attitudes are changing. They're changing toward a lot of things. One of the biggest changes going on is an attitude toward reproduction, fertility. I mean, most countries of the world are now seeing beginnings of a decline in fertility. And within another few decades, populations are going to be coming down all over the place. I don't know how far they'll go, but if they go back to where they were when I was a kid, you know, in the 1950s, that would be a remarkable reason for hope. This planet does not is not going to support 8 and 10 billion people indefinitely. 
but it could support five or six billion, half what we've got, or two billion, or three. We had only two billion in the 1920s. We can go back to that. It will have a big social impacts, there's no doubt, but I'm hopeful that we are learning or recalculating and not having as many children as we once have. And I think the same will be true of consumption. I'm hopeful that our, at the same time, that our technological innovativeness, which is based on, to some extent, population levels, is remarkable. And that we have can create things and ways of living without the same kind of impacts that we've been having. And we're learning about this. So I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful today and not to be apocalyptic. That's Hollywood stuff. But uh, I think we, we should, looking at this historically, say, we're going to be around for a long time to come. We're going to learn how to live better. And we're going to be fewer in numbers. And we're going to be much more sensitive and better informed. And we're going to work with other nations much more the long-term view. It's the next 20 or 30 years it's going to be hard for us to get through, but we'll do it. We've done it before. Let's close with books, which is my favorite topic. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience on these topics or others that are important to you? Two or three books on, on the West in general. Well, there's so many in the last few decades. Historians writing more, I think, informative critical, balanced books about the American West, like Richard White, many of his books, Patty Limerick, University of Colorado. I'm a big fan of an environmental historian in New Mexico, Dan Flores, F-L-O-R-E-S, who's got a new book out called Wild, Wild New World, Wild New World, about wildlife in North America. And Sarah Dance's new book on the environmental history of the West called Losing Eden. It's more positive than that title might suggest. <laughs> but there are lots of older books that we could go back to. Bernard DeVoto, Wallace Stegner, Henry Nash Smith, books that I have been informed by. What's your favorite Wallace Stegner book? My favorite Wallace Stegner book is probably Wolf Willow. That's just a captivating book about a part of the world on the Canadian border. What it meant to grow up on the Canadian side of the border instead of the Montana side. It, it's really powerful. And the smells and the, the visual imagery of that book is powerful. It's a memoir. Hmm. Uh, so about water in the West? Well, of course, I can recommend Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert. Many works of William Du Bois in New Mexico, mostly on the Southwest. We've got many more new books coming out all the time on Western water, rivers, irrigation, urban growth. The West is full of great writing these days. And those are books that I have. I'm not thinking about the American West these days so much. I'm, I spend much of my time when I can, not recently, but but over the last decade in China and teaching and exploring and really thinking about the planet itself rather than simply the American West. But those are books that have, that have shaped my Western history imagination and I still 
look to as models and teachers. Yeah. Well, I'd encourage everyone to go pick some of those up and also to go rewatch Chinatown because it may have been a while. Thanks again for talking with me. I really appreciate this. You're quite welcome. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.